Breaking the Cycle to Poverty, featuring Jay Height, Executive Director of Shepherd Community Center in Indianapolis. My name is Tim Swearens, and I'm your host for these conversations that examine why poverty remains such a persistent problem in the United States. On this episode, we're continuing our conversation with Shepherd Assistant Director Tim Street about his role in fighting poverty in the city and, and, and his very personal story about growing up in Indianapolis. Jay, would you uh, bring us into this conversation with Tim about uh, his testimony? Yeah, I again, poverty many t- is, it comes in many forms. And there are a lot of folks who are in bondage and poverty because of their inability to understand and practice forgiveness. I think Tim has demonstrated the power of forgiveness in his life to the point where, as he'll share the story, you can talk to us about Don mm-hmm. and uh, how Don ends up uh, an employee of Shepherd Community in a very miraculous way. Uh, Tim, take us back to 1978. Okay. Well, many of us remember the winter of 1978. Um, I was uh, 15 years old, sophomore in high school, and uh, my father, uh, who was a chaplain in the Army, uh, we were uh, living here in Indianapolis. My father was stationed out at Fort Bend, which is uh, the Army base on the east side of Indy, which is no longer an Army base, now part of it's Fort Bend State Park. But uh, well, we had lived here, it was a fourth year to live here, and uh, we would have been moving that summer uh, to Colorado, uh, Fort Collins, I believe. And uh, uh, my sister was a senior in high school. Another sister was uh, a sophomore in college. And uh, many of us remember the winter of 78, uh, the blizzard of 78. Uh, But it wasn't just one blizzard. It was a snowy winter all around. And uh, one Sunday night, uh, we lived in a a small town uh, east of of the base. It was the first time I'd ever really lived off an Army base in my life here in Indy. And um, we lived in a small town called Oak Landon. Uh, If you live out there now, people say you live in the Geist area. But back then, it was a small little town. And and, uh, one night, he and I were shoveling snow in our driveway one Sunday night. Uh, and uh, taking turns with the shovel. We only had one and talking. And I remember I was standing looking at the house with my back to the uh, street, and I heard a voice behind me. And the voice said, you know, don't move and nobody will get hurt. And uh, I turned around. There was two men standing there. One of them had a gun. And uh, I heard my father just say, you know, what's going on here? And uh, the gun went off. And uh I looked at my father, and he stumbled over backwards in the driveway and fell down, and, and the man with the gun stuck the gun in my face and uh, demanded my wallet, which I didn't usually carry a wallet. I actually happened to have one, weirdly enough, but it only had a dollar in it. And uh, But I handed it to him, and I, I remember turning around um, kind of with my hands up and, and uh, looking at my father on the ground. And I remember very, very vividly just thinking I'm going to be shot in the back at this point in time. But I looked over my shoulder what seemed like, um, you know, minutes later, but I'm sure it was only a few seconds, and I saw them uh, running up the street, ran over to my father, and, and um, I could tell it was bad. But, you know, my dad had uh, – my dad was a career Army. Um, he had uh, been uh, in the 82nd Airborne and jumped over – jumped out of planes over a 1,000 times in his life. He had his British wings and his German wings. And, and uh, so one, and, and I remember he had come home from Vietnam. He had, he'd been in Vietnam when I was in second grade. He'd come home from Vietnam with uh, 11 scars on his body from 11 pieces of shrapnel 
having been injured. And so one, you know, one bullet wasn't going to kill this guy. And uh, so I, you know, ran into the house and you know, screaming, I'm sure, and, and uh, eventually went over. The two neighbor men came over, and you know, obviously the police and, and everybody else arrived. And I was rushed off to the police station to, uh, to tell the story of what happened. Uh, my sister and my mother, you know, went to the hospital with my father. And so I spent the night, you know, telling them what happened and, you know, fully expecting that, you know, tomorrow morning, you know, the next morning, uh, you know, I'd have the kind of conversation with my mom that we'd had when we heard about his injuries in Vietnam, which was, you know, dad's, dad's going to be in the hospital for a while. He's going to need to rest. You know, we're going to, you know, need to take care of them. And about six o'clock the next morning, I walked in the front door of the house and uh, my sister was sitting there on the steps uh, in front of me, and as I walked in, she just stood up and threw her arms around my neck and whispered, "Am I your dad's dad?" You know, and you know, as you might imagine, my my whole world, you know, came crashing down around me, and and uh, um, I actually have uh, I actually have relatively few memories of uh, of my life uh, in the, in the years in the, in the few years after that, uh, but I can tell you that. Um, uh, that the only way that I really got through those times was really my faith and, and uh, thousands of people praying for us. There was about 1,500 people at my father's memorial service uh, and, uh, um, and, and then several hundred more at his funeral in Washington, D.C. He's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And, um, and I, I can tell you it was only through the prayers of, uh, of, of those people that I really, uh, uh, really was able to get through that time. Bring us forward. Um, you have uh, some life-changing experiences um, as an adult uh, related to what happened to your dad. Yeah, um, you know, I think you know. As I mentioned, high school. I think if you would have asked anybody uh, about Tim Street, I think the first thing in high school, I think the first thing they would have said was he was a Christian. He was very, uh, very upfront about it. I was the head of FCA and uh, student leader of campus life in our high school and. You know, leading friends to the Lord and such, um, but uh, went off to college, um, not not with uh, any real direction about what I wanted to do with my life. It was just you know what you did next, and um, and and I'm sure I, I always say that uh, I, my experience in college was unique. Uh, I don't think anybody else ever experienced what I did, which is that when I went off, I didn't always make great decisions. I know everybody else did. Uh, no. Uh, but uh, but by the time I graduated, uh, if you would have asked anybody about Tim Street, I doubt they would have said he was a Christian. Um, I would have, but uh, there would have been no evidence to convict me of that fact. And uh, uh, after college, uh, I had I had worked my way through college a little bit, and uh, I was uh, uh, ended up uh, tending bar uh, for um, a large restaurant chain. And uh, they asked me if I would uh, train staff and train uh, folks and then eventually became part of a team that opened new restaurants. So I was traveling around the country and uh, making really, really good money. And uh, I was young and on a team of about 18 people who were all a lot of, uh, a lot of fun but, you know, liked to party pretty hard. And it was a young person's game, very physically demanding. Um, but uh, uh, I remember... Um, after we opened a store in uh, Massachusetts, uh, we had a period of time between store openings, and uh, which meant everybody went back to their home store, which for me would have been Indianapolis. 
Uh, but I was asked to go down to Houston, Texas to work in a store down there for a while that was having some problems and see if I could identify what was wrong with it. And literally kind of working undercover, you know, sort of corporate undercover work. And uh, so I went down there and, and um, uh, it was tough. Uh, one, uh, Houston's a very hot place in the summer. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm, uh, I always say I'm an overweight guy of, of Northern European descent, which means I don't like it when it's hot. But uh, uh, so uh, it, was, it was tough because I, was, I struggled to make friends at work because, you know, I had to be evaluating these folks. And so I would go out to the bars and try to meet people. And I remember one night I was, but it was kind of a lonely existence. I kind of got very depressed. One night I was driving down the street in a song uh, on my way back to my hotel, one o'clock in the morning, a song by uh, Brian Adams comes on the radio, summer of 69, where he, he talks about um, how he and his friends started this garage band back when they were in high school. Mm-hmm. And, and the chorus is, you know, those were the best days of my life. And I remember thinking, you know, high school, those were the best days of my life too. But that's pretty depressing. And uh, I kind of went into a 20, 24-hour funk until the next night. Almost the exact same spot on the road, same car, so on my way back from a bar to my hotel, and a song by Bruce Springsteen comes on the radio. And uh, uh, the song's called I'm on Fire. And there's a line in the song, uh, some, sometimes it's like someone took a knife all edgy and dull and cut a six-inch valley through the middle of my soul. And I remember thinking, that's exactly the way I feel right now. And uh, But I knew that I had taken the knife and cut God out of my life. And... Uh, I started to cry. I had to pull over the side of the road because because uh, I, uh, uh, I I couldn't see through the tears, and and I started to pray. And I prayed for the first time in years. You know, I remember the first line of my prayer was, you know, okay, God, I, you know, it's Tim. I don't know if you remember me, but uh, kind of recommitted my life to the Lord right there in the car. And uh, uh, the next day, I, you know, I I ended up talking to my regional manager, and and I knew that in a week or so I was going to have to go to a new opening and knew that uh, I wasn't really strong enough at that point in time to walk into this room with the 17 other other people and, you know, tell them that I wouldn't be partying with them because, you know, and I'd given my life to Jesus. And, and um, so I ended up quitting that job, and he graciously let me go back to my home store full time, temporarily. But, but over time, I really began to realize, um, you know, that I wasn't really going to be happy doing anything but serving the Lord. I tried a few different jobs. But, but within a few months, I was actually leading a Bible study in my church because for me, it wasn't like, you know, I was, it wasn't really a new Christian. You know, I, I had grown up in a Christian home and, and uh, I knew the Bible fairly well for somebody that age. And so I uh, ended up doing some things with my home church and began to realize that I, I didn't really want to, I wouldn't be happy doing anything else. And so I uh, decided to go to seminary and um, ended up um, at a seminary on the North Shore of Boston. Um, called Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and originally went out there with the thought of getting a degree, a, a, a Master of Divinity degree, which is what most people pursue if they're going to be ordained. But then there's some specialties within that, and and I was really thinking youth ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but while out there, God began to use a lot of experiences to sort of change and refine my call. Um, when I was out there, I, uh, I got involved with Young Life uh, at, uh, at the local high school, and, which was a very, very well— Gordon Conwell sits on the North Shore of Boston in a, in a town called Hamilton, um, uh, actually South Hamilton, and, uh, which is right near Hamilton and Ipswich and a very, very wealthy area, horse country. 
And uh, so the kids we were working with were primarily, you know, very, very upper middle class, even even wealthy. And uh, it was a challenge, you know, uh, but I loved it. I enjoyed the kids. I loved going to camp and, uh, and things like that. But one semester, I had to take a class, uh, and it was one of these theology classes that you had, the systematic theology classes that you had to take in order, uh, you know, and you couldn't take three until you'd taken two kind of thing. And so it was time to take three, and I needed, to, I needed it to graduate, and I needed it that semester. But um, the only place it was being offered was at a satellite campus uh, that Gordon Conwell had down in the inner city called Kuhn Center for Urban Ministerial Education. And so uh, I started taking the tea down one night a week uh, to, to take this class down the inner city of Boston. And I knew, I knew the city pretty well. I, I'd actually opened a restaurant uh, on the South Shore and lived in Boston for, for a year or so right after college. But, uh, but I, this is a part of the city I'd never really seen before. And um, uh, what was interesting is that I was the only, uh, I was the only person in the class. Well, one, I was the only white guy in the class. <laughs> And two, uh, I was the only one in the class who wasn't wasn't a, in full time, you know, bivocational ministry. Everybody else there was a, a minister in urban church, but also had a job. And uh, and so, you know, when when it was time to tell stories, you know, we told very different stories. And uh, uh, one of the guys in the class was a young life leader in urban Boston. And so, be, me being a young life leader, we you know we hit it off and started talking and. And we had met once before at, at camp, but, you know, but um, so anyway, he, he, one time he asked me, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you know how Young Life works, but you bring, you know, you, you have these clubs and you get kids in and you do fun things and, and you serve pizza and stuff like that. And then you present the gospel to them slowly over the course of a year, all geared towards encouraging them to come to a Young Life camp where they can hear the gospel in a way that, uh, can be very powerful and effective and hopefully give their life to Christ. And, and uh, so we have these little talks. And uh, so we were talking about his club and my club. And he said, well, what are, you, what are you talking about with the kids right now? And I said, well, we're focusing on the problem of sin. Uh, and he said, what do you mean? You know, he was some, somewhat surprised by that. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, the kids that we work with are very wealthy and, you know, their parents are going to set them up. They're going to go to good colleges and they're not going to have to pay for it. And they're going to be back here someday and, you know, leave – Lead pretty good lives, you know, from a from a worldly perspective. And I said, so, so we really need to spend time convincing them that there is a problem in the world called sin, and and they have to deal with it. And he just thought that was very funny, and and but it but but it, important to him. It was a new realization to him. But then he said something which was a new realization to me, which is, we don't talk about the problem of sin. He said we go straight to the hope. He said because the kids that we work with are not interested in any story that doesn't have a happy ending. You know, and if you don't start off with a hope, you're going to lose them. And uh, he said, plus, these kids lie in their beds at night with their windows open. They hear gunshots down the street. They know there's a problem in the world called sin and that they got to deal with it. And, and I became fascinated by that. And, um, uh, but about the same time, and so I ended up, go, now I'm going down two nights a week to attend his Young Life Club and, and watch. But about the same time, God began to use a number uh, of Scripture uh, to really begin to change my thinking. And, um, you know, I grew up in, during a period of time when 
when uh, being a good Christian, you know, it was all about having that quiet time. You know, you got to have that quiet time every day. You got to memorize scripture. You got to spend this amount of time in prayer, so on and so forth. And I was always really bad at that. <laughs> I always felt like a bad Christian. But uh, so then I, so I decided when I got to seminary, well, maybe if I'm going to be a professional, I really should take this stuff seriously. And so I started reading the Bible very, you know, pretty voraciously. And, and I still do read it, read through it about once a year. Um, or but maybe once every eighteen months, I guess. But uh, start off with the plan for a year. But so, but I used to approach it very differently. I would say, you know, okay, God, um, when I open the Bible, you, you know, you tell me what you want me to see. Okay, rather than me going like a lot of people do to 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 find something to support what I believe, you know, change what I believe to make me consistent. And I remember. One time I was reading in Ephesians, and uh, and Paul is talking, and he's in a, in a, and he's, it's a long list of, of of do's and don'ts that he's given to the uh, the church in Ephesus, and and then he says, and those who have been stealing must steal no longer, and must do something useful with their hands, so that, and I'll leave it at dot dot dot, and and his his his, his end of the sentence really kind of surprised me. Because if you'd have asked me, having grown up in you know, in the six, late sixties, early seventies, you know, why would somebody uh, who's been stealing? Why would they need to stop stealing? And why would they need to find honest work and so on and so forth? Uh, my answer would have been well, so that they will be ready, you know, and and demonstrate the power of the Spirit in their lives, so that if anybody asks, you know, they can share the gospel, you know. Um, or, or a number of answers like that. But Paul didn't answer that way. Paul said, so that he may have something to share with the poor. And as I said, I, you know, in, in a previous podcast, the way I grew up, serving people in poverty was not a big part of what it meant to be a Christian. And, and, and you know, I was sort of smacked in the face with, well, obviously it's important, you know, if Paul said this. And, and, and you know, it's like that... Uh, it's like that phenomenon where you start thinking about something, you know, you start thinking about, you know, a green Volkswagen, you see green Volkswagens everywhere. Uh, the next thing you know, I, everywhere I look in Scripture, there's a, there's a verse about serving the poor because they're all over the place. And God began to open my mind to that, and, and I started, well, this is maybe something I need to take seriously. So the next thing you know, I find myself taking the tea down to the city three, three nights a week, cause one to go to you know, this Christian soup kitchen and, and serve the poor, one to go to Young Life, one, go, one to go to class. And God just should be again to use those experiences and so many others really to call me uh, into ministry in the city and, and, and ministry uh, to people in poverty. Um, and, uh, and, and it, so it was just a really time of uh, significant growth. So you graduate from seminary, you, you enter the ministry, urban ministry, and then a God thing happens, uh, in terms of forgiveness. Let's, let's talk about that. Well, I came back to Indianapolis, believing that God was really calling me back here, mm -hmm. uh, and applied for a number of jobs that I thought I should have. Uh, and, and nobody seemed, nobody else agreed with me. <laughs> and so, uh, but about the same, the same time, um, you know, and I was articulating a call to, to ministry, articulating a call to the urban environment, particularly the poor urban environment. And, and, uh, about, but about that time, a guy, a friend of mine gave me a book. Uh, the book was Breaking Down Walls. And, um, it was written by two guys in Chicago, one white, one black, and it was about their relationship, and it was all about racial reconciliation. 
was a very powerful book, and uh, and it it really hit me that this is really first. I should tell you that the men who killed my father happened to be black, and so uh, you know, having grown up, um, you know, in, on army bases that which tend to be very multicultural, race was you know an issue in, in all of our lives as it is in everybody's, but. Um, I really began to see that maybe God was calling me more specifically to this ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up uh, writing to the one guy uh, who was the head of the ministry. Uh, there was a white guy who was the head of a multi-service ministry, not, not unlike Shepherd, mm-hmm. and then uh, the black pastor of the black church that partnered together. And they, they were great friends and had, had committed to one another and written this book together. And so I ended up applying for a job up there and, uh, and, and got the job. Um, but, uh, I was, a you know, I had to raise my own support and things like that, but, but ended up, uh, about that same time met my wife and we got married. And so I ended up spending the first couple of years of my marriage to my wife working in this ministry in Chicago that was heavily focused on racial reconciliation mm-hmm. and ministry to the poor. And we lived in the community. Uh, we lived in uh, the Austin neighborhood of Chicago at the time was the highest crime census track in the state of Illinois, but we lived with a great community of believers uh, and and uh, the pastor of the church is a guy by the name of Raleigh Washington, and and a great great pastor and, and a wonderful man, and, and Wally had his own amazing story of forgiveness and reconciliation, and how he himself had, had refused to to, uh, uh, to to be bitter and and had forgiven, and, and how God had blessed him through that, um, and so uh, and so, but I remember one Sunday morning, and I always say. Pastor, Pastor Washington was a great preacher in a, in a lot of ways, but you ever seen these preachers on TV? I always, I always say this, these TV preachers, they can take any verse in the Bible and turn it, a, in, turn it into a verse about why you should give more money to the church. Okay. I always say Pastor Washington could take any verse in the Bible and turn it into uh, a, a sermon about racial reconciliation. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember uh, one, um, one Monday morning, uh, I was having my quiet time, and and uh, pastor had preached a particularly good sermon the previous morning, and I was sitting there and and I remember praying, you know, God, I would really like to be that kind of powerful speaker, uh, preacher, you know, who can who can speak to power, you know, speak with power to both the black and the white audience. And, and Raleigh was great at that, and Pastor Washington was great at that, and and uh, uh, and I and I remember in my prayer naming other heroes of the faith, you know, people like John Perkins and others. And, um, and, and so I, I said, God, you know, I'd make me, I'd like to become, I mean, give me the kind of wisdom to be that kind of preacher. And in very, very few times in my life have I ever felt God speaking to me audibly, but I really felt God spoke to me audibly that day. And he said, um, well, those men that you've mentioned can preach with power about forgiveness and reconciliation because they themselves have forgiven, and you haven't. And and I knew, and I'd read the Bible, <laughs> as I said, I knew that uh, uh, that forgiving people was important, and and I you know I knew that you know God might ask me to forgive the men who killed my father, but I'd kind of reached this deal with God. Uh, he didn't have anything to do with the negotiations, but uh, in my mind, I'd, I'd reached this deal with God where. Uh, where I knew forgiveness is important, I knew it was probably something I needed to do, but I, I, you know, I would always say, and I will as soon as I see some remorse, because I'd never seen any remorse from the actual shooter. This guy's, guy's name was Michael, 
And, uh, and, and so, you know, God was saying to me that morning, you need to forgive. And, you know, and I'm like, well, but what about our deal? <laughs> and, uh, and God said, and God brought to mind the scripture where it says where Christ went to the cross and died for our sins before we asked for forgiveness. And, and, uh, and I knew that God was saying it's time to forgive. And I, I ended up uh, writing a letter uh, to the shooter, um, telling him I forgave him and explaining the things that God had done in my life. And, um, you know, it was a particularly powerful time because, you know, um, a friend of mine always says, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if Satan's leaving you alone, you're not doing the right thing. <laughs> you know, if Satan thinks he can ignore you, then, then, then you're not following what God wants you to do. And, you know, whenever we step out in faith and do something that we believe God's calling us to do, and, and, I, and we are in line with God's will, Satan's going to attack. And he did. And as a matter of fact, I was, I was on my way to the post office that next day to mail the letter. And I got into an accident. Uh, I, it was the other driver's fault. Um, and uh, it was a long story, but uh, the three guys in the other car happened to be um, uh, gang members. Mm -hmm. I recognized a couple of the colors. And, uh, and, and they attempted to pull me out of the car. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, the car was still running. I ended up driving away, and they chased me, and I, I drove um, to the ministry and got into the ministry. They came in, and, and the receptionary called the police, and they left. But, but it really, it frightened me. I mean, and, and what it did was it brought to the fore a lot of my issues, which maybe even I wasn't aware of. And one of them was uh, personal issues of personal safety. Sure. And, and Satan really, really attacked. And it got to the point, within a few days, I couldn't leave my house. And, um, and, and my boss, Glenn, came over, but then Pastor Washington came over. And, and the amazing thing about Pastor Washington was that he, he was empathetic to everybody. And, and you know, I, I'll, I'll confess that there was some people in the community who, when they heard happened, their response was, well, welcome to the hood, you know, and he didn't do that. And uh, instead, he prayed for me and he said, I understand. Um, and he said, and the church, need, our church needs to take responsibility for your healing. And, uh, and, and I had never shared the story of my father, by the way, with anybody at the church. And I shared it with him that day and he read the letter. And he said, when you're ready, I want you to, to read this letter in front of the church. Uh, because I think it would be powerful for the church. And, uh, and, and the next morning, uh, when it was time for me to go to, to work, uh, there was somebody uh, from the church at my front door uh, to take me to work. And that happened over the course of a couple of weeks. And a couple of weeks later, he asked me if I was ready. And, and, and he read uh, the, the letter to, in front of the church. And the whole church really rallied around me and my wife and really began the healing process. And the church was, as I said, was, a, was an intentionally mixed-race church focused on racial reconciliation. But all the folks in the neighborhood really rallied around us. And, and rather than just having the attitude of welcome to the hood, welcome to what we deal with, uh, they didn't. They, they really uh, started the healing process. I was able to, to, write, uh, to mail the letter. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that was the beginning of, uh, of, of, I think, really my own healing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then over time, um, we ended up moving back here to Indianapolis, and, and um, Jay mentioned a guy by the name of Don. And uh, uh, one day I was having lunch with uh, a pastor from uh, Light of the World Christian Church, 
and and he was telling me about the work that they were doing up in Pendleton Prison. And he said, I know somebody, and I, we weren't talking about my, my story or my father, but he apparently knew it. And he said, I know somebody who was involved uh, that night that your father was killed. And he said, I know Don Cox, who was the driver of the car. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, he said, I know Don, who was the driver of the car. And and he said, he's been coming to our, our services up there. And uh, and I'm sure he'd, he'd love to talk to you. And I immediately felt bad because I had written the letter to the shooter, but nobody else. And uh, And I felt like... You know, this is something I needed to extend, obviously, to him as well. Right. And um, long story short, a few weeks later, I ended up uh, going up to, well, first I wrote to him mm-hmm. and wrote him basically the same letter, right. apologized that it took so long, uh, because it had, by this point in time, it had been a couple of years since I'd written that first, first letter. And the, and, and the shooter never responded. Um, but, uh, but then I offered, you know, to come visit him if he wanted to. And I immediately got a letter back within a couple of days saying, yes, I'd, I'd love for you to come visit. So we set up a visit, and I went up to visit him. And Don is, is a very interesting guy, a very great guy. And uh, he had never gotten out of the car the night my dad was killed. He wasn't present at the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a matter of fact, original testimony, which I went back to read, uh, indicated that he had tried to take the gun away from the shooter because mm-hmm. you know, he didn't want anybody to get hurt. Well, he got 90 years for his participation, um, two 40-year sentences, five years tacked on for each for aggravation, and then served back-to-back, so 90 years. And, uh, and so he was basically going to be in prison most of, the, most of the rest of his life. He'd be in his 60s, late 60s by the time he was eligible for parole. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I, I went to visit him, and we had a wonderful time, and... Um, uh, he had really changed his life. When he went to prison, he didn't have a high school diploma. By the time I met him, he had a bachelor's degree from Ball State in history and had taken advantage of every trade imaginable. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember it was it was difficult for me. Uh, it was kind of a scary experience. I'd never been to a maximum security prison. A friend of mine who used to visit all the time went with me. But uh, one of the things, uh, we talked for an hour or so and, and hugged, and he said, uh, would you mind speaking to my mother? And I said, no, I, I wouldn't mind. And um, one, and I ended up having a conversation with his mother. And what his mother told me later, and then Don told me later, was that Don gave his life to the Lord the day I visited him in prison. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. He didn't tell me that. But he later told me that he saw this uh, this white guy standing. And when you walked into a maximum security prison, they, you know, they, there's a series of gates. They shut the one behind you before they open the one in front of you. And he said, I saw you standing between the two gates. And, uh, and I, he said, just, there was just something about you. I knew it was you, uh, even though I didn't know what you looked like. Um, and, uh, and he said, but I could also tell you weren't standing there under your own power. And he goes, and that's the moment that I knew God was real and the gospel was real. And uh, the funny thing is I, I invited, uh, I talked to his mom on the phone. I said, well, yeah, sure, go ahead and give her my number. So she called the next day. And my wife said, invite her over for dinner. My wife uh, love is, is, is wonderful with hospitality. She said, invite her over for dinner. So I invited her over for dinner. And, and, uh, and she, she called me back the next day and she said, do you mind if my daughter comes? And I said, not at all. So the next day her daughter co- calls and says, do you mind if my sister comes? She said, no. And the next day she called her back again and she said, do you mind if my brother comes? And, and, and later she confessed that she cut it off. Uh, and there was a lot of other people who wanted to come. 
But we had uh, we had a wonderful time together. Uh, Don's mom eventually met my mom, which was a cathartic experience for mm-hmm. both of them because they both realized that they had, you know, lost something that night. And uh, well, and Don had a petition in front of the court to for a sentence modification at that point in time to have his sentence modified from. Uh, two 45 years served back-to-back to serve simultaneously, concurrently. Um, and I supported that petition, and it was granted. I, I supported it not because I felt like my forgiveness had anything to do with his sentence. Um, uh, because, you know, there's my, uh, the issue of personal forgiveness, and then there's the issue of, you know, uh, state's justice. Uh, I, I supported the petition because I felt like 90 years was excessive for, you know, for his participation. And, and that he, if there's anybody, you know, who, who deserves some consideration, it was him. And so, so he ended up, uh, you know, as Jay mentioned, he, he ended up getting out of prison after uh, 23 years. And uh, I helped him get a little landscaping company started by, you know, by helping him uh, uh, capitalize it a little bit, bought him a lawnmower and some other things. But then... Uh, a number of years later, you know, we had a program here at Shepherd, uh, a crisis intervention program, a violence intervention program, where we worked with uh, Wishard Hospital, which later became Eskenazi. And when somebody would come into the emergency room, uh, having been a victim of violence, uh, they would send a counselor in. Because most of the time when somebody's a victim of violence uh, and they come into the emergency room, one, they're very vulnerable and ready to make some changes. But two, they've also been engaged in some type of criminal behavior themselves, mm-hmm. and so they're ready to make changes. And so we had a, a female uh, counselor and a male counselor, both having served more than 20 years in prison themselves, and Don was our, our crisis intervention male counselor. Uh, that, that program un- unfortunately ended uh, because of the, money, uh, of the money situation, but uh, uh, he's still a very good friend. As a matter of fact, I saw him just this afternoon. Uh, he still works on cars, which is one of the things he learned to do in prison. That's why I saw him, because he's going to be putting a new transmission in, in, in a truck of mine that I need. <laughs> and uh, he's still a good friend, and, and uh, we have lunch occasionally. And, you know, he's, he's doing everything he can uh, with the rest of his life to, uh, to make sure that the other people and, and his family members understand the mistakes that he made. Uh, he does happen to have two, two sons, and, uh, and, he's, and he's working with both of them. Uh, and, uh, and it's just been a real joy to, to watch the power of forgiveness in his life and in mine. So. Tim, thank you for, for sharing such a powerful story. Um, speak to those who have suffered trauma and who may be wrestling with not the easy step of, of giving forgiveness, offering forgiveness to those who've inflicted pain. Well, you know, my my story has gotten a lot of attention. Um, it's been uh, not because I've sought it out. It's just it was just very coincidental. I, I got a call from a reporter at the Star one day who Michael, the shooter, um, he's had a number of petitions in, in front of the court, and one of them was coming up in front of the court, and she called me uh, to ask me my opinion, and we were talking about the case, and I you know, and he was seeking a new trial, saying he he didn't do it. And I said, well, you know, I'm even more sure today than I was then. I said, primarily because I've had conversations with Don Cox, who told me everything that happened that night. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, has taken full responsibility, and, and his story matched mine. And, and she said, you, you know, she was fascinated by the fact that I had spoken to Don. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so I told her the story. 
And so she ended up going with me one time when I went to visit him in prison <clears throat> because I went back a number of times over the course, uh, course of the next couple of years. And then later, that story was picked up by the uh, CBS News magazine, 48 Hours, mm -hmm. and they were doing a series of stories on forgiveness. And so they featured our story, and then the 700 Club featured the story and some other things. And so it's gotten some attention, mm -hmm. not because we've sought it out, but, but I think God's you know, opened some doors. But I get contacted a lot and asked that question by people who've heard the story. And, you know, I'll tell you, my, my, my first reaction is not to forgive. You know, my primary spiritual gift is prophecy, and, you know, prophets aren't really forgiving people. And, uh, uh, and so I know that's because of the power of the Holy Spirit that I've, you know, that it's become a big thing in my life. But, you know, I'll hear, I'll hear these amazing stories. I remember one story... One time, uh, a young 16-year-old girl contacted me, and she said, I'm struggling to forgive. I really want to forgive my uncle, who's in prison. Mm -hmm. Well, her uncle was in prison for, for raping her mm -hmm. continuously from the time she was five to the time she was 15. You know, and my gut reaction is, don't forgive him. I mean, you know, and, you know. Right. Uh, you know, not, not describing it in those nice terms. I said, you know, let him rot in prison the rest of his life. You know, but that's not good for her. You know, it's not good for, for anybody. And um, so it's not my natural reaction. And, and what I've come to believe is, you know, I always say love is an action more than a feeling. Mm -hmm. I think forgiveness is as well. I mean, we're commanded to forgive. And so many people, I'll hear them say, well, you know, I really want to forgive. And I'm asking God to give me the power to forgive or 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 heal me of of the anger and the bitterness that I feel, and then I will forgive. And and I tell people, I think you know you're you're putting the cart before the horse, so to speak, or you're putting uh, you're looking for the healing before the obedience. And oftentimes the healing comes after the obedience. I mean, we are called, we are commanded to forgive. You know, it's not an option, and uh, and it's an action. Um, and I'll honestly tell you, I didn't feel forgiving when I wrote that letter. Uh, I have felt since that. Uh, but I think that's the blessing and you know, the catharsis that God has, has provided in my life through the act of being obedient and saying, okay, God, I don't want to do this, but I will do it because you're commanding me to. And, uh, you know, I think that's the same thing with loving peop difficult people. You know, I don't want to love this person, but I'm commanded to. And and I know that that the, my life will be better, and their life will be better if I do. And so, uh, and so I'm not. I, I don't hold myself up as a great example of a forgiving person. <laughs> but I, uh, when people ask, I say what I have been, what I have gotten, was the blessing and the healing from an act of obedience. And I think I think we, that's really the way we need to approach it. Tim, would you pray for our listeners who may be struggling to forgive? Sure, sure. Precious Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to share your story, not mine, but your story in my life and, and in Don's and, and other people's. And, and Father, uh, I just pray that whoever's uh, had the opportunity to hear my voice uh, through this podcast, if they're struggling with the issue of forgiveness, um, that you will you'll give them really the power to be obedient. You'll give them the strength. Um, you, you do call us to forgive. I mean, it's in, it's in your, your word so many times. But it's hard, Lord. It's a hard thing to do sometimes uh, because we're angry, uh, you know, we're hurt, and uh, and we don't see how forgiving the other person, you know, can help us with that anger and hurt. As, as a matter of fact, sometimes it's easy 
for people to think uh, the exact opposite is going to happen. Um, but Lord, we know that uh, that you have promised forgiveness, you have promised healing in our lives, and and many times we really need to to be obedient before we receive that healing and receive those blessings. Uh, but I ask you to to just empower those who are struggling with the issue of forgiveness. Let them see the, what a blessing it will be uh, when they can come to that point in their life. Um, and Lord, just help them be obedient uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, and Father, whatever whatever this story, um, however this story can be used in the lives of people, Lord, we just ask you that your Holy Spirit make that happen. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim, for sharing a very personal and, and, and powerful story. For 37 years, Shepherd Community has made a lasting difference in the lives of thousands of neighbors, and, and the Shepherd team couldn't do that work without the support of donors, partners, and volunteers. To learn more about how you can help, please visit shepherdcommunity.org. Thank you for listening.